Welcome to the Mark Sterry Music Podcast. This podcast is an audio journal of my guests and I's adventures throughout the world of live and local music. My name is Mark Sterry, and I'm a 20-plus year veteran of the Twin Cities, Minnesota Metro music scene. Check out MarkSterryMusic.net for upcoming shows, news, and info. If you'd like to toss a buck or two in the podcast tip jar, please visit Patreon.com forward slash Mark Sterry Music Podcast. Great times at B-Dale with Dan Neal and Johnson, packed house at Carmine's, and thanks to Macklemore, Corey, and John Don for making the trip to Shoreview. This week's podcast, number 328, dropping Tuesday, February 1st, 2022, is part one of three Minnesota singer-songwriter Dan Israel. We talk name pronunciation, working for the legislature, his beginnings in music, and more. Enjoy the conversation. Mr. Dan Israel, welcome to the Mark Steering Music Podcast. How are you doing today there, brother? I'm good, Mark. Well, I didn't even know how to say your last name until you just said it. Do you know that? <laughs> I didn't know how to say your last I name I thought either. it was Starry or something, but... No, it's I'm Starry. Sorry. Starry, I know, Starry. Though. I should know. I've been seeing it a lot for years, you know. Yeah, well... You've played a few gigs, you know. Play a few gigs. I yeah. haven't seen yours too. I didn't realize yeah. your name is Israel. Yeah, that's the not techni- Israel. Technically speaking, yeah. Israel. That's right. So that's we both right. got those kind of unique sounding that's names. That's right. We need a pronunciation guide with that name. <laughs> so we're here actually on a beautiful winter day here at the beautiful Beedle Club, proud sponsor of the podcast. Finally, the temperature broke. Yeah, uh, it's been so rotten cold, and it's, now it's it feels like you know today's tolerable. Today's I mean more than this. Today's nice. It's not my favorite month. I don't think anybody who who's whose favorite month in Minnesota is January. <laughs> like what kind of psycho thinks this is a great month? But right, a day like this and when it's like right, it gets to be freezing or so, even a little above, then it feels like paradise a little bit. I agree. And I I've, I've been delivering packages during the day, so it makes a big difference whether it's below zero really sucks to be out there doing really yeah and what do you deliver yeah. packages for i've been doing you know the, like the shipped you know like for target basically just okay. just picking those routes up whenever i don't have i have like you i have multiple income streams not none of them that that much stream but uh <laughs> i i do for years i worked for the legislature i had a full time you know and then some day job. Really? Uh, I worked for the Reviser of Statutes, which is the office that, like, uh, basically prepares, pro- you know, I proofread, edited. Wor- I be- basically was like an attorney assistant on all the bills that came through the legislature. I would proofread them, you know, suggest edits, print them, type them, whatever, you name it, make copies, you name it. And, uh, I just sort of fell into that as my musician day job. I had actually, I didn't go to school for that or anything. I, I, I grew up in St. Here, I'll give you my capsule yeah, life this is, story. This is very loose. Yeah, yeah whatever, man. Sure. I'll get, I, but, but interrupt me anytime. I don't need to monologue it too much, you know, but whatever. Uh, I grew up in St. Louis Park. Uh, kind of, you know, growing up, I kind of was more and more, as I got older, I, I, well, I got really into music. And movies, film stuff, and I was kind of like looking at the Cone Brothers, who were from St. Louis Park, and and then there were, you know, music people from St. Louis Park, like guys from the Jayhawks and Semisonic Trip, Dan and Matt Wilson and Peter Himmelman, all these, you know, Mark Perlman from the Jayhawks. There were a lot of people 
that I could look to and see, oh, they did cool stuff. Uh, and then for a while I wanted to be like a sportscaster and I got to know Mark Rosen a little bit and like looked up to him. And so I knew I was going to end up somewhere. I was always, you know, kind of saw myself ending up somewhere in entertainment of some kind, but I didn't know what exactly. So I, in high school, I like had bands, but I also had like a videotaping business and made funny little videos with camcorders my friends had and, you know back and forth film and music basically and so i went to school i went to college i went to northwestern in chicago for i majored in radio tv film and you know i was all gung-ho to do that and but then i got there and i think i just realized music was number one over film you know it was always like what gonna be one of those two my parents were great they were behind whatever i you know they'd made it clear I, at some point I'd have to support myself and get a job somehow. But, you know, uh, but once I got to school, that's when I like really started writing songs. You know, I'd been in cover bands and all that kind of stuff. And, and I got, you know, I was big into playing guitar and learning how to play, be a lead guitarist and classic rock. You know, I was a Jimmy Page fanatic, a Clapton. Richards, Townsend, all the, George Harrison, you know, but I kind of moved a little bit more towards like the Dylan Tom Petty thing of being more like a singer songwriter and started writing a lot of my own songs in college, you know, started playing around campus. Then I formed a band. At first it was like a duo. It was called One Town Horse, like One Horse Town. Ooh, clever, right? Ha. And then we, we were a duo. This other guy was a really good songwriter too, Brad Bowden. And then we kind of like expanded into having a bass player and a drummer. And first we played on campus. Then we got stars in our eyes a little. Hey, we're right next to Chicago. Let's get gigs in Chicago. So we started, we made a demo and we started playing in Chicago. Um, had some pretty good gigs in Chicago, actually, despite nobody really giving a shit what we were doing. Um, but, you know, we, we, we made a little, little, I don't want to say a splash. That'd be a way exaggeration. But we played. We got, we got our feet wet. And I graduate. I managed to graduate. I got done early. Uh, I was so, you know, ready to just. I had enough of academia. It didn't fit suit me, I, but I wanted to get my degree, so I finished. But as soon as I finished, I had all kinds of. I had a girlfriend I was breaking up with, and I didn't know what. You know, the year was 1991 or two, and I was lost. I was totally lost. I. I graduated actually in December of 91. I moved, I, bro I broke up with my girlfriend like in March. That was, I was young too. I was, I had skipped a grade in school. I left all that out. Sorry, but, uh, sounded braggy anyway. There was lots of reasons for it, but I, uh, I graduated. I, uh, we had this, I had this breakup and then I moved to Madison, Wisconsin. My fr couple of my friends were there. I thought, oh, I'll go there, you know. I was lost, didn't know what I was doing. Stayed there a month. I was distraught, lost, didn't know what the hell I was doing. Moved back to Minneapolis for a couple months. And then this guy from Northwestern from college said, hey, man, we let's move to Austin, Texas. I'm like, what? Austin, Texas? 
I've never been to Texas. I mean, I'm just going to move to Austin, Texas. I barely know you. I don't know anybody there. I don't know anything. But there was this movie, Slacker, that had come out, Richard Linklater movie. And I'd seen that, and it kind of made Austin look fun. You know, everybody there looked like a, it looked like a big party. Um, and it was kind of, and it was cheap, you know, at that time, you know, it was, it was up and coming. It wasn't there. There was no Dell computers yet. It wasn't all corporate and whatever. So I don't know. I just was back in Minnesota that summer of 92. I'd been moving around. I've been, had my heart broken and I said, okay, what the fuck? What do I got to lose? I'm 21 years old. If I'm not going to do it now, I'm never going to do it. So I made this kind of rash decision to move to Austin, Texas, having never been in Texas, having barely known the guy I was moving with, who's going to be the bass player in the band. I mean, he was a bass player. We had played shows together, our two bands had in Chicago, but I didn't know him very well at all. And he went down first. He got us. He rented us a house. John Nodal, his name was. And uh, September 1st, 1992, I arrived in Austin, Texas. And I mean, I had a journal. I can find stuff I wrote about it, like, what the hell am I doing? It really felt crazy. I packed all my shit up and just moved there out of, out of, on a whim, basically. And I got down there, and I was like, okay, I better, you know, we started playing open mics. We, we busked. There was a, it's called the Drag Guadalupe Street next to the University of Texas. We'd go down there with our, he had an acoustic bass, and, you know, he learned a bunch of my songs real quick. He was really quick study, and. Uh, we had a whole slew of covers we worked up. We met all these crazy street people. You know, it was like kind of a... Sorry, there's a <laughs> I have a dog. Yeah, that's yeah, no, fine. Um, and uh, and we started... I mean, we were, we were laser focused because we didn't have anything. We knew we better get going. We, our families were like, what are you guys doing, you know? And so we got gigs. You know, we played open mics. Then we got gigs. We added a... This, we added a female percussionist named misty misty khan and uh so we were a trio then then we kind of merged with this other band called the laughing dogs their guitarist and drummer became our guitarist and drummer like we would play shows together and they, they then we'd have a full band you know with a drummer and a, and a kick-ass guitarist this guy noel mckay um so then we just started playing a lot in austin and we made a demo then we went in, and this was 92, so it was not totally the CD era for indie bands yet. It was expensive, in other words, to make a CD. You made tapes, sure, but a CD, ooh, you know. Service special. This year at ID Chrysler's Umbrella, buy three tires and get the fourth for free. With all the winter weather, I love my new tires and my black Jeep Cherokee I got from ID Chrysler. But 250,000 miles of my old car, just too much for that poor thing to take. I found myself looking for a new dream ride at ID Chrysler. The staff can more help with me choosing vehicle and willing to work with my, as I call it, musician's credit score. Their philosophy is simple, time-saving, hassle-free, fair price. Check out the inventory at ZombrotaCDJR.com or take the beautiful drive down US 52 to 1900 Roscoe Avenue, Zombrota, Minnesota, to visit them in person. Fitness hours are Monday through Friday, 8 to 6 p.m. and Saturday, 9 to 5 p.m. Closed on Sundays. Check out ID Chrysler Zombrota today and enjoy a safe winter season full of adventures and memories out in the open road in a new ride. 
I want to tell you about one of my favorite bars in the Roseville slash St. Paul, Minnesota area. The B Dale Club. Look into the corner of Count Road B. And Dale's motto is a place for family, a place for friends, a place for fun. And that is the truth. Rocking at a B Dale with Dan Neal and Johnson was a 2022 highlight evening for me for sure. Thanks to all who came out. Excited for the rotating music schedule there. Rob, Natalie, Shelley, and entire bar staff are all state-of-the-art cocktail wizards. As of late, my libation of choice is a classic Greyhound cocktail. And there to quote 16-time world champion Ric Flair, tasty little devils. Live music, pool table, pool dads, bingo, botch ball tournaments, and much, much more. B-Dale's got it all. Stop by for a cold one soon. Ooh, that's going to be expensive. But we did it. We made a CD. Uh, Potter's Field was the band. That was the name of the band. Which, by the way... Uh, ever since people have asked me like, okay, what, why were you Potter's field? But since then I've seen bands called that or seen the phrase. So it means like a graveyard for, for the indigent. Like it's in, it's in the Bible or it's in the, I'm Jewish, but it's in the new Testament, I think. But it, it means like a, it's kind of a grim meaning. It's like a cemetery for people who can't afford to be buried anywhere else. There is a Potter's field in New York, like on one of those islands in the, next to Manhattan. Um, but it's also in It's a Wonderful Life because Mr. Potter is the mean guy who, the rich guy who runs the town. And I know, I rewatched it again this year and I was reminded that they actually say Potter's Field in the in the movie because, because in the alternate reality where George Bailey never existed, Mr. Potter ran everything and one of the parts of the town was actually called Potter's Field, which wow. was definitely a reference to the to the whole idea of, you know, rich, poor, divide thing. So anyway, um, but but we, we went at it really hard. Um, we played a lot in Austin. We tried to play around Texas. We had the CD that we'd made. So we, we were, oh, we got a tour. You know, nobody wanted us. You no, know, nobody knew who we were. But we came up, we played up back in Minneapolis and Chicago twice we did tours all the way up by 35 and uh and meanwhile all that time i needed to have a day job um so i you know did various i was like a waiter you know whatever i worked essay scoring jobs you know they had these temporary jobs that you could do and then somehow i connected with the legislature down there and it turned out i was one of many people there who were musicians working at the legislature as, as a proofreader. And so I, I did that for two legislative sessions down there. I lived there three years. Um, and they only have a legislative session every other year in Texas. So in between I got unemployment, whatever, you know, I did whatever, but, but, um, the band, you know, we were kind of going full tilt. Then there started to be sort of like riffs appearing because John and I were roommates and we were bandmates and it was like maybe too much togetherness and there were romantic entanglements with various women that didn't always work out so well in that arrangement and uh, I don't know it it fell apart the whole thing fell apart um, that's its own whole like I've written like about I've written song you know a it was the most traumatic band breakup I've ever had because it wasn't just a band breakup. It was my entire reason for being down there fell apart. You know, basically it was almost like uh, I caught, it was almost like I was the spurned lover who caught the uh, the other person in an affair. But in, instead of an affair, it was he was trying out for another band. 
and I got the phone call one day from the guy who had a big record deal asking for John. And it, I mean, funny now to think back how much it was like a soap opera because John got home and I'm like, why is blank blank calling here? Blank blank, who just got a big record deal with James Cameron, uh, the guy who did made Titanic. He had started a record label called, label called Lightstorm Entertainment. And this was a big deal that I'd already known that this guy got this big deal. But to find out that my bandmate was trying out without telling me sucked sucked bad and uh and i confronted him and then the whole band blew up blew up and uh we split up the band split up and he he didn't really end up the side story about the guy who got the record deal was that james cameron ended up folding his label and the guy's record never even came out on on that label but as it was it was enough to to fuck us up and uh and then I, I went solo, quote unquote. Not that I was, you know, I, we were not big time, but we did, we did get press. We got, we managed to make an, enough inroads that like we got written up in the Austin Chronicle a number of times and, you know, like the city pages there. Um, I think I might have even conspired slightly to stuff the ballot box, but I got named as one of Austin's top 15 songwriters in their Austin Chronicle music poll in 95 or something. And I was, you know, I was on a list with like Jimmy Vaughn and Alejandro Escovedo and Daniel Johnston and people like that. Um, but, uh, so basically, yeah. So the band broke up kind of like after about two years there, and and I went solo and I found other musicians. I made new demos. I played a lot of solo shows. But eventually it was kind of like, okay, the reason I moved down here has disappeared. You know, the band is gone. And more and more I just kind of felt like, much as I loved Austin, the scene leaned a little country for me. Even though, really honestly, a lot of people would go, dude, this Austin's not that country. There's a lot of indie rock. Yeah, but... That middle ground between, I've always inhabited that middle ground. Like I've always like been a little too country for the indie scene and a little too indie for the country scene. That I felt basically like when I saw bands like the Jayhawks and Soul Asylum and stuff come down and play in Austin, my feeling was these guys are more on my musical wavelength than what the music is here. And they were all riding a wave then, by the way. That was, Soul Asylum was huge then. And I just couldn't help but feel I belonged back in my hometown. I had some good connections musically. There were people I knew that had connections to, you know, Prince's band. And, you know, I even had some Dylan family connections and stuff, which I still sort of do, but not that it's ever mounted to too much in that regard. But, you know, I just I just felt like, this this is where I belonged, so I moved back, and that was that was the end of '95. So I, I spent just over three years in Austin, and I got home. I I did the proverbial move back with the parents thing, and was living in the basement, and uh, it felt at first like a really bad idea to have moved back. You know, I moved back in November, so like that winter really sucked. That '95 '96 winter was a it was a beast of a winter. It was like when they hit 60 below up north and stuff. 
But, you know, I, I really went hard in, in the Twin Cities trying to get acoustic gigs and put a band together. I eventually I found a bass player, drummer, you know, a lot of incarnations, but eventually I put together a band that I called Dan Israel and the Cultivators. And, and that we, you know, I right away went in the studio, recorded with uh, Rich Matson and Dave Russ, who are still integral to my life here, even though that was like 25 years ago plus but i mean dave's still my drummer but those guys were working as sound guys at the 400 bar the old 400 bar and so when my band potter's field had come up to play here i had met them and then when i moved back it was like oh i know these cool guys i met and you know they both had studios so i recorded with them and i put out a record like in 96 put out uh, that was called before we met I didn't bring you that one today, but there's that's going back pretty far. For a little while, I shortened. It was kind of the era of the wallflowers and all that kind of stuff. And I thought Dan Israel and the Cultivators was too unwieldy, so I... For one record, I call us just the Cultivators. I tried to brand us as like a band, even though it was my band. So there's a record in 99 called The Cultivators, Mama's Kitchen. And that one kind of like, I actually got uh, an indie label to sign, quote unquote, me. This label in Arizona called Hayden's Ferry Records in Tempe. I don't remember how. It's probably they advertised in No Depression or something. You know, it's kind of the era of, of alt country taking off. And uh, they were not, you know, they did not have major resources or anything, but still it felt pretty validating to get a, a any kind of record deal and uh, got my stuff more in Europe, you know, a lot more um, through my own efforts and the labels. So I kind of, you know, I, I would get sent these Italian magazines with big color reviews of, of my records. And I'd be like, why am I not going over there? So for years I was like, I, you know, I'd get, emails from people in Italy and France and Germany and Belgium and Netherlands. When are you coming over? What, you know, we love your music. I got airplay over there, but like anything else, it wasn't quite enough to, it wasn't like I had booking agents knocking down my door. So, uh, anyway, but in personal life stuff, a few months after I moved back, I played a, a, uh, at the old uptown bar. I was, I was actually, I was working as a courier uh, for a medical lab and I got my first cell phone and I remember I was going home from the the job on a Tuesday in February with that super cold snap at the beginning of 96 and I called the Uptown Bar hoping to get one of these acoustic Tuesday gigs in, in April or something and they said actually can, can you play tonight and I said oh I wasn't really mentally ready to okay sure and so I, I played that night it was uh, February 6, 1996. Of course, I remember the date because I met my wife that night. Um, I opened for the Carpetbaggers. John Magnuson still plays around town. Uh, they were like kind of happening band at the time, Carpetbaggers. They toured with Sunvold and stuff. Anyway, I, so I, I met my wife Lisa that night, and that, you know, my life really changed a lot because I we ended up getting married, and, um, and then I... You know, I had worked kind of these courier type jobs and then I found out that there was a legislative type of job here. I when I first moved back I couldn't seem to find anything like the proofreading I had done, but 
turns out there was, and I went to go work for our legislature, a similar type of job. The big difference being there were no other musicians working at our legislature. It was not a hippie fest. It was Dan's the weird guy with the music career and everybody else is, this is their, you know, more or less their career. And for me, I had a different career and it would never, the, it never, I was never able to not be reminded of that by the way I was sort of treated, I guess. Like, I mean, I'm sure lots of people would say I was treated fine, but they didn't live in my brain in my life. I had a lot of shit to deal with all through the years. There was always at least one. I mean, a lot of people were really nice to me, really supportive of my music, liked my music, bought my records. Tons of people there were supportive, but all it takes is one person above you in an organization to, to be down on the fact that you got another career and can make your life kind of a living hell. And believe me, they did sometimes. And there was a constant tension between, like I would get gig offers on day, we had like a rotation schedule for working overtime. I'd have to switch with people because, you know, I can't not play at the turf club or first app. You know, I was getting some pretty good gigs at times then, and I would get a really big offer and then I'd have to switch and they'd bum out on, the, you know, and then I'd work twice as hard just to kind of overcompensate for whatever crime I was committing. Um, and also, you know, just the fact that people knew, you know, I was getting known a little bit in town and it, to me that was validating to my bosses. It was bad publicity to have Dan be known for something else. What if his, you know, and there was a real strict nonpartisan policy. Well, what if I wrote a song that was non nonpartisan, right? Well, I did. I just had to be a little clever about it and not be, you know, obvious, but I did. I snuck a few in there. I had one about, a governor here, for example, that I called. The song was called Plenty. It sounded a little like his last name. Yeah. And it was, it was, if you read the lyrics, you would never have had any doubt what it was about. But they weren't reading my lyrics, so I got away with it. <laughs>
can't promise happiness, a life of bliss. All I'm saying, we should just give it up.